Before today's topic, a quick disclaimer. The stories and data we share come from the states that we practice in and the experiences we personally had, which can differ greatly across our country and certainly the globe. This is not a professional advice show. So get comfy and let's discuss death. Welcome to Mort Mike, a down-to-earth discussion on death and dying. I'm Jem. And I'm Red. And this week we are your afterlife archaeologists. I am very excited for today's episode, as it is the first in a long line of its kind. We would like to take time every now and again to discuss death, funeral rites, dispositions, and death culture in general for different religions, peoples, and empires through time and space. <laughs> To kick off this new series, we thought we'd start with one that many listeners probably at least know something about, and that's ancient Egypt. When I was in high school, you were either a horse girl or a mummy girl, and you bet that I had a copy of Egyptology on my shelves, so it just felt really right to start here. To save our breath, when we refer to Egypt or Egyptians in today's episode, understand that this is about ancient Egyptian culture, not modern Egyptian culture. And so I think that, uh, like you said, ancient Egyptians, that is kind of like the first thing that people think about when it comes to like, um, you know, where did embalming come from? And where did like preparing the deceased come from? And where did all of our modern practices that we still have today, uh, where did they originate from? Most of it's from ancient Egypt uh, and their own practices. So it's going to be really exciting to kind of talk about how um, this has evolved like over the centuries and millennia or whatever have you. So I thought we would start by talking about just dying in general and what that means in like ancient Egyptian society. Um, so basically what's really interesting about this time period is that uh, ancient Egypt and other like early civilizations, um, this is the time of, of the first time in, in human history that there is luxury and there is time to be had to think about certain things and kind of percolate on certain things. There, there are no longer like hunter-gatherer societies, um, you know, in the past where if someone died, you just kind of, you know, handle it and like move on with your your survival. And you didn't, you know, people didn't really have time to sit down and think about, okay, what is happening? What does this mean? Um, or, you know, maybe they had a very like rudimentary understanding of death. So the cool thing about ancient Egypt is that, like I said, this is an age of luxury. It's actually called like an age and an oncoming of uh, sedatism, um, which is like a sedentary lifestyle. Um, so these people had time to sit and think about what dying was and what that means in their society. And they just really had the heightened awareness of dying. Obviously, certain um, life expectancies started to go up. So especially uh, richer people and uh, noble people, I think in ancient Egypt, at least in the records or whatever, a uh, life expectancy of a, um, a noble person would be anywhere from like 50 to 75 years, which wow. is a very long time. Um, considering that a lot of peasants usually died in their like, you know, 20s to 30s. Oh, yeah. my buddy. <laughs> 
So that's, and you know, you, you kind of hear about that anecdotally with like, um, stories about these like pharaohs living for, for ages and ages and ages. It's because, you know, in comparison to like the typical life expectancy, they, they were living an extremely long time. Um, and these people were seen as, as, as gods and as, uh, just like incredible, incredible beings. So there was really, um, a lot of thought that went into, um, especially honoring nobility and honoring um, people of a higher status when it came to dying um, because of the ancient Egyptian religion, which I think, Red, you're going to talk more about later, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. So people in ancient Egypt, and we'll talk about this more later as well, pretty much everyone was prepared and buried. Um, this was the common practice, and this was kind of a, a ritual uh, in every sense of the word, and this happened for every person that died. Um, even the poorest of the poor had certain um, rituals that they followed and ceremonies that they followed in order to honor their dead. Um, and like I said, this is really unique to a more organized civilization such as ancient Egypt as opposed to you know the hunter-gatherer lifestyle where um, maybe wherever someone died, they were just kind of left there or uh, kind of like a rudimentary um, like burial system. Well, especially when, you know, they're mobilized and they're moving from place to place to find different sources of things that they need, like they never really settled down. So especially with this empire, you, you know, like I'm assuming that they would have had time to set up roots and create systems and specialize in their jobs and like stuff like this kind of comes um, along with that, right? Yeah, and so we're definitely going to touch on all that stuff later. But then another thing you have to think about is that they, so they're starting to understand death. This also means that they're starting to understand um, what the active act of dying is. Um, so because these people are um, sedentary and they're you know settled in a certain place, um, they start to become aware of the act of dying, and they kind of have an idea of when someone might be dying or is going to die. This gives the person that is actively dying, this is the first time really in society that this person has a role in their own death. Um, So this is where kind of a spirituality sort of develops where these people that are dying are requesting um, spiritual and material items for the afterlife that is taught um, through their religion, through their their, uh, scriptures, I guess, for lack of a better better word. so it's it's really it's really cool that um you know this is kind of the start of like a death positive <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> environment uh this is the origin the origin uh this is the origins of that um because basically these people are you know becoming more aware of the act of dying and their own death and they're able to kind of plan for that um, and it sounds like a really modern idea, but it's written down in all these records. And I, I just think that's so cool that they, you know, just started to have this kind of uh, like societal understanding of like, this is what like death and dying is. And this is how we're going to deal with it. Well, especially when you're not so concerned about where your next meal is coming from, you know, like your your mind is able to do a lot more gymnastics in in more theoretical and uh, philosophical ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's really cool. And so, because um, ancient Egyptians were actually, or 
yeah, ancient Egyptians were really, I don't want to say like enamored, but I just really cognizant of, of the act of dying and the, the concept of an afterlife and, you know, what, what does happen when this person like ceases to exist. They put a lot of thought into their religion specifically regarding um, death and dying. And it kind of um, permeated like their whole, their lives and their whole society. Absolutely. So here we go. We're going down the rabbit hole. Everybody put your uh, put your seatbelts on. <laughs> here I come with my entire like 20 page thesis paper. <laughs> <laughs> so there a lot of people are familiar uh, with like ancient Egyptian gods. They were not uh, monotheistic as we, we see in many mainstream religions today. Monotheistic meaning uh, belief in one singular god. Or like a central god, you know, uh, Christianity doesn't count because I guess all three of those things, uh, the Holy Trinity is just one man anyway. Um, But the ancient Egyptians were polytheistic. There were many gods that they sought different aspects of their life from uh, that were basically paired with different things. And it's it's a lot. It's like almost for everything that you could think of, there's going to be a god attributed to it. So when a lot of people think about like Egyptian gods of death, the most common one that comes to mind will be Anubis, right? He's our jackal-headed original gangster god of death, even before Osiris. And he's mainly the god of embalming, uh, the overseer of a trial of soul judgment. Uh, but he's also the protector and guide to those that enter the afterlife. He's a, a watcher over of cemeteries and, and the list goes on and on and on. He's pulling most of the weight uh, for the dead in Egyptian culture, to be honest. Uh, But going back to mentioning Osiris, um, he is recognized as the god of the dead, the afterlife, the final boss of soul judgment. After being killed by his brother, which is super lame, he was embalmed (laughs) by Anubis and uh, then bypassed him as ruler of the underworld. But Anubis is still pretty much always seen as like the god of death, truly. Isis, then, is another god, or rather goddess, of magic, fertility, and rebirth, and is Osiris's wife. And uh, with her magic, she assisted Anubis in embalming and bringing back uh, life, bringing back Osiris to life. And uh, fun fact, uh, she's uh, Osiris's sister, so that's fun. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those old-timey people. <laughs> They're crazy uh, incest mythology. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> A few other gods uh, that play some uh, decent roles in Egyptian death culture is going to be Ma'at, a goddess of balance, law, order, and truth. Uh, You can think of her as like Lady Justice with the scales, you know. We also have Amit, uh, goddess and soul executioner. We have Thoth. badass. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I cannot wait to talk about her later. Super cool. We also have Thoth, who is a scribe to all of eternity and one who records the naughty and nice list of who got into paradise and who didn't. There's like a bazillion other gods uh, that either share tasks, have crossovers, or play minor roles in death, but these are just the main ones. Otherwise, we would literally be here all day on just gods and goddesses of death alone. Uh, They literally, like I'm not joking you, there is a god for everything. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the big questions um, that people might be asking with Egyptian afterlife, is there a heaven or hell dichotomy? And they didn't quite have the concept of uh, heaven and hell that we see in like modern Christianity, but there are like these themes of paradise. Death itself was viewed not so much as an end, but rather a transition. 
If one soul got a pass from the gods, good old thumbs up from the deities, it would continue on its journey to paradise in the field of reeds. And uh, what that was was an idealized version of the living Egyptian world. So uh, basically a mirror image um, of a world they once lived in, but, you know, crops never died. Water was always plentiful, things like that. Those who weren't as lucky to be judged worthy of a chance at paradise didn't go to a hell. They just got destroyed, <laughs> like obliterated, like not existing was far worse a fate to them than than going to a hell, like a, a place of punishment. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, it makes sense, you know, because it's like a fear of death, but then also a fear of just ceasing to exist anymore. That's very interesting. Yeah, honestly, I I like that more as a concept than like eternal damnation, like mm -hmm. just not being alive and there's there's nothing to look forward to. I feel like is much worse in in its own concept. So yeah. I, I liked that a lot finding yeah. that out. An interesting change that occurred through Egyptian history was uh, the democratization of the afterlife. It was a switch from who you were as a person dictating your entry into paradise, but actually on your knowledge of how to get there, which they use like spells and guides, and I will definitely jump into that later. So uh, th I thought that was very cool. Um, it, it made the afterlife more accessible to people. So that's like... Uh, the OG leveling of the fields for different, <laughs> you know, class structures. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I was talking about where, you know, these people like as a society started to have like these plans where like, hey, I need this and this and this before I die or else I'm not going to make it in the afterlife. So you're right. Exactly. Like like peasants had as as much of a chance as um as uh, nobility, obviously, maybe nobility had uh, more access to more um, of these like spells, quote unquote, and guides. Um, but it really was kind of like you, you said, like a level playing field. It's very cool. And there are quite a few things that a person has to do to do these preparations that you're talking about to get into the afterlife, whether you're uh, rich or poor. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, if you found yourself dead or dying, you had better hope that you had networked really well beforehand. I thought making arrangements for a funeral today was a struggle, but you need basically an entire convoy to take care of things for you in ancient Egypt. Um, a tomb team, if you will. <laughs> Ooh, a higher tomb team. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own job. jokes because it's good. <laughs> <laughs> there were various goods that needed to be procured to accompany someone after they passed on, and they were mainly broken into two different categories. Items to help you navigate the perils of the afterlife and worldly mortal things to see that you had nourishment and comfort even after your last breath. Something to note is that graved goods changed throughout the course of Egyptian empire. I'm just going to speak about some of the most common ones in no specific time orientation. These goods also varied between the elite and the peasant classes. This is a theme you'll start to see come up quite a bit. Um, they may have started as something only pharaohs could afford, but then made their way progressively over time to lower classes, like we mentioned. Like they used to say, mo money, mo shabti. That will make sense soon, I, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the afterlife was a crazy place to be for a soul, so it was, a, it was very smart to be strapped up before you attempted your journey. Funerary texts would accompany you, complete with spells and walkthroughs on what to do along the way. And when I say text, I don't, I don't mean like physical books necessarily. These, these texts started being uh, carved onto the chamber walls of the pyramids, eventually onto the coffins. Uh, later, they were inscribed on papyrus scrolls and even the mummy's bandages. 
Papyrus made these spells affordable so that they were accessible to more people. And uh, one of the most famous collections of these spells and various diagrams is the Book of the Dead, which I'm sure is the thing that all of the mummy fans out there have been drooling waiting for us to talk about today. (laughs) In total, the Book of the Dead contained 192 spells that we know of so far, but was never found in its complete form at any one tomb. Only the spells that were needed or that could be afforded would be provided. Different sections of the Book of the Dead include topics like protection and transformation spells, navigating the underworld, and the final judgment of the soul. According to a single book reference I stumbled upon, um, spell 189 is a protection against eating feces and drinking urine. Um, (laughs) I have not found any other sources to confirm this. I also did not know that was something that I had to worry about in the afterlife, but... (laughs) Good looking out, I guess. Yeah, I want that spell in my coffin. Yes, please. (laughs) Cool, another thing to worry about. (laughs) Another important protective object to have in your afterlife arsenal are amulets. These were extremely symbolic and believed to have magical properties. Having problems in your love life? There's an amulet for it. Your neighbor's dog won't stop barking at night. Amulet for that. Line too long at the grocery? Amulet! (laughs) I am being facetious, but they did have amulets for most anything that would ail you in life and death. Common amulets given to the dead were scarab beetles, a symbol of rebirth, onks, a hieroglyph representing life, and miniaturized carvings of deities whose powers were wished to be invoked. So now that you have your spiritual gat, provisions need to be stocked. Little do people know, MRE actually stands for Mummy Rations for Eternity. <laughs> we gotta put some wacky sounds in this episode <laughs> it's just me i'm just gonna make that <laughs> people were buried with food and everyday items like clothes pottery combs and even games the rich were afforded much more creature comforts than most having elaborate coffins and furniture commissioned to deck out their tombs making for one really exciting episode of funeral cribs <laughs> Another common fixture of the tomb would be Shabti dolls. Carved of wood or stone, they were workers for the dead, essentially. Labor was a very important part of Egyptian life, and so these dolls were essentially stand-ins for those who had passed on to continue their work for them in the afterlife so the soul could go about a new path. The poor might only have few to actually know Shabtis, where royalty could have a Shabti for like every day of the year. The more shabti to do your duties, the more comfortable your afterlife. Hmm. Animals would sometimes be sacrificed and mummified to be companions in the hereafter, and in more rare situations, human servants and slaves were also sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true in a lot of records. Uh, I actually have a fun anecdotal story here that I read in one of my uh, references. So there was this um, tomb discovered for a... Um, a woman who was believed to be a um, sort of like a spiritual, um, a spiritual person, like someone that has a high uh, status in spirituality. Um, I would say kind of think of like a priestess or something like this. Mm-hmm. And apparently, so the, the, the mummy was also found with a smaller uh, humanoid mummy, which was assumed to be, her child so (laughs) the the assumed story that these historians kind of put together was that this woman was a um a religious person and she was supposed to 
um, be a virgin and be uh, virtuous in that way. But she had this child, therefore she was killed and mummified and buried with her child. It turns out, <laughs> after DNA testing, the mummy was not of a child, but of her pet baboon, <laughs> whom, whom she loves dearly and was buried <laughs> with <laughs> upon her um, natural death. So that's just like a fun little tale explain, explain that evolution <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's crazy so you finally have your posthumous luggage packs so what's next upon death the soul would then enter duat the realm of the dead or the underworld it was familiar but not too familiar do you like my do you like my uh, bim bam reference there? yes suck that in real quick <laughs> <laughs> There were uh, fixtures of the living world, like rivers and fields, but some fantastical features like lakes of fire and walls of iron. This is where all of your preparations came into play. The soul would navigate through the underworld, through gates guarded by demons and the like, just to get to the place of judgment, the Hall of Truths. This is a pretty tricky journey, and hopefully the spells and the maps and passwords sent with you could guide you through. So once you arrived at the hall, this kicked off a two-part judgment. This is uh, something that people are probably pretty familiar with. Um, your, your heart would be placed upon a scale against the feather of Ma'at. This was overseen by Anubis. If your heart was found to weigh more than the feather, it would be fed to Amit, the crocodile-headed lion hippo that I talked about earlier, which is just a fever dream uh, of a concept. <laughs> The heart was seen as a part of the soul, actually, for this reason, and was left in mummified remains to be present for the judgment. You would also be tried in the second portion by 42, count them, 42 lesser gods, <laughs> um, each in charge of confronting you about a different specific sin. It was basically a giant trial where you were being prosecuted by 42 lawyers in front of the judge, the god of the underworld himself, Osiris. <laughs> You would have to plead innocent to crimes such as murder, lying, causing tears, adultery thrice <laughs> for some reason, being loud, uh, being loud voiced. Um, <laughs> and, and my favorite wiki entry for God number 39 sin, it literally, literally all it listed next to it was doing dot 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 question mark. Doing? Doing? So all you out there doing, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> bro i would so not get into egyptian paradise man doing <laughs> just cut that stuff out <laughs> oh my god so if all of these tests and interrogations went in your favor you would finally be permitted to join your dead dead loved ones in the afterlife when they said this was a journey, they were not lying. Not even Frodo had this much standing between him and Mount Doom. Mm -hmm. And so like we talked about earlier, um, there there is such a really big class difference between like the peasants and the nobility and the rich. Um, but when it came to the afterlife, everything was sort of like nulled out and kind of depended on the material items that you had with you. Obviously, uh, ipso facto, if that's even the right terminology, the rich people are going to have more materials to deal with the afterlife than the poor people. No. <laughs> but there was some um, really cool, um, just like material world things that were done um, for both of these classes of people. So obviously we know about tombs and pyramids for the rich. 
So I think everyone knows the pyramids of Giza, which is like the first thing that pops up when you type in like pyramid <laughs> Egypt <laughs> in Google. <laughs> Um, and these are the classic Egyptian uh, pyramids that were created for um, one single person. And this was common for, especially for um, for people of extreme nobility, like pharaohs, um, stuff like this. But this actually didn't really start happening until later in um, ancient Egyptian civilization. Um, a lot of the times early on, uh, the tombs for the rich and the nobility were kind of like a stepped sort of approach. So like kind of like a stepped looking like house pyramid quote unquote some more like mayan type like temples and pyramids uh yeah i guess you could say but yeah definitely just like more of like kind of like a stepped thing um and then there were also like communal tomes um that were uh flat roofed and they were just kind of tombs that you know everyone could go in um and you know obviously reserved for the rich and i'm sure there was some sort of class system stuff going on there um not an expert um but another thing that uh, was really prevalent um and it's really important uh to remember is that there is an overall fear in ancient egypt of body disintegration what that means is that the whole point of embalming, which we're really going to get into later, is that they wanted to prevent the body from decaying because they wanted the body to um, kind of look the same as when you were dead so that your soul could recognize your body in the afterlife. This is very important. Um, so a lot of what they are doing and a lot of the practices that they had kind of revolves around this idea. Um, for example, rich people had often these like gold coverings um, that had their like faces painted on them and they were put over the the remains and they were kind of like, um, I guess you would call like an early version of like a death mask. That's what that's called, right? Yes, yes. Death masks were, I don't know if it was popularized, but I, I do think it, it definitely started around those time frames, especially with ancient Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll see that actually carried through to many other cultures uh, past their empire. And then obviously that was reserved for like the most uh, rich people in ancient Egypt. Um, oftentimes what would stand in as a substitute for lesser important people would be something called an, a cartonage. And that was usually made out of like, it said cardboard, but I'm assuming like wood or like some sort of like particles situation. The mar modern alternative container. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so like we talked about before, um, it was very important for people to be buried and not cremated. Again, um, because of the sphere of body disintegration, you want the body to be preserved um, in any way that you can possibly have it that way, whether you were rich or poor. Um, so really everyone was kind of buried or entombed in some sort of way. If you weren't, it was like a really big no-no. Religion was like just permeate, permeated throughout the entire society. Like everyone believed this. Um, so there's also a certain side of the Nile that everyone was buried on. And this is kind of like, uh, I think, something that people often hear. Um, it's a true fact uh, that uh, you had to be buried on the west side of the Nile River um, because the sun sets in the west. And it was believed that the underworld is on that side, the west side of their world, quote unquote, whatever they thought. Um, so yes, everyone was buried on the west side of the Nile due to the reason that the underworld was over there. It would be easier 
for the person to get to the afterlife. So burial was not just enough for preserving these bodies. I mean, bodies still decompose even in like a a, a dry, hot environment like uh, Egypt. Um, bodies are still going to decompose. There are still going to be problems. So one of the main um, things that ancient Egypt kind of gave us and kind of um, I don't want to say like carved the pathway for like <laughs> uh, uh, the care of the deceased and stuff like this is is embalming. Um, ancient Egy Egyptians used to embalm their bodies, and not only was this done for the rich and the noble. Um, in a very elaborate process that Red is going to um, enumerate for us shortly. Um, but also, basically, everyone to the poorest of pheasant had their own version of embalming that was extremely important um, for preserving these bodies. So the ancient Egyptians were actually some of the first peoples to be credited with the process of embalming, uh, especially their own unique one that they came up with due to their resources available and where they were located geographically. So like Jem said, uh, preserving the body through mummification had that one main function of allowing the uh, corpse to look like a person uh, and the person that died long enough for the soul to be able to find the body again. Embalmers were specialized priests with a knowledge of human anatomy as well. And when someone passed away, their body would be taken to the embalmer's tent for purification. It would be washed with palm wine and rinsed with water from the Nile River. And then the body would be transferred to a secondary tent, and that had the nomer of the House of Beauty. And this is where the real show gets on the road. Ooh, la la. <laughs> <laughs> so organ removal came first. An incision with a shard of obsidian would be made into the side of the body for the lungs, the liver, stomach, and intestines to be removed. The heart was left for the afterlife purposes. The cavities were then washed with palm wine again. And the reason being was that there was an ethyl alcohol content that was perfect for disinfection and preservation. The organs were then further preserved in natron, a mineral salt that was harvested from dried up riverbeds. And then the organs would be placed into respective canopic jars resembling the four sons of the god of Horus. It is really cool that they kind of figured out, quote unquote, to use alcohol to kind of preserve these things and disinfect. Uh, germs were not a, really a thing in ancient Egypt. Germs were not discovered yet, guys. Uh, also, we still use alcohol today to preserve organs for specific studies. Um, so it's really an actually scientifically sound uh, method of preservation. Especially considering, like, because we didn't know about, like, science and tiny, tiny, tiny little bacteria, um, that this is, like, all very trialed and error and uh, just observational right like they just noticed that certain things did certain things and so they started doing it and it took tens of hundreds of years for this to become a practice mm -hmm. that that worked the way it did now everyone's favorite procedure the zet i was going to i remember writing this out and being like i should put in like a quick little thing to show how to pronounce this but i'll remember it <laughs> let me try is it x Cerebration? Yeah, that's why. Because cerebra cere cerebrum. Is yeah. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> this is why we both have to be on this this show because we're we're two halves of the same brain cell. Oh yeah, just one brain cell, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so this process was facilitated through a hooked instrument that was inserted into the nose and forced through the ethmoid bone into the cranial cavity. The brain was scrambled about and pulled out through the nose. 
and any bits left over were liquefied with some type of drug concoction and left to drain out. The brains were unceremoniously discarded because they weren't believed uh, to do all the thinking. They, they thought the heart did all the thinking. <laughs> this is so funny to me because they were like, what's this like goopy stuff inside of our heads? <laughs> Does not matter. Get out of here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, and, and anyone who's thinking like this can't be true, like you can't take your brain out of a hole in your nose. It's, it's actually like really, I've never done it before. I will tell you that, but it's really plausible. The ethmoid bone is a really, actually a really thin bone that kind of creates um, <laughs> like the bottom of your cranial cavity. So yeah, you can just punch right into that bad boy and then once like red said the brain is like scrambled around and liquefied especially after um decomposition starts to set in the brain gets really really soft really really fast and i can definitely imagine it just kind of drips out of there Um, i would probably akin it to like scrambled eggs like really juicy scrambled eggs is what it feels like because you can squish I have reached my hand inside of an organ bag many a times. <laughs> and that's what it feels like to me. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would say like runny scrambled eggs. <laughs> Somebody who Sorry, should be fired guys. off the line kind of scrambled eggs. <laughs> Um, I also read that a lot of the times, so there is a there's a hole at the base of your skull where your brain stem goes into, and sometimes that was used as well to drain the brains out of the head. They would, I think, I think they would remove the head partially and like let your brain drain out of the bottom of your skull that way. Good lord, um, which is really just uh, a pretty grotesque. Um, but yeah, coming out through the nose is, is definitely a plausible action. So inside and out, the body was then stuffed and covered with natron to begin the lengthy drying process. And once desiccation was achieved, the body was washed again with an oil mixture uh, being applied at the end of it. These oils kept the body pliable enough to not break during later phases of embalming and was often infused with some type of fragrance to combat the odor. The body is stuffed with dry materials like uh, linens, straw, sawdust, anything like that that was available to fill in the sunken areas, as well as spices for some more good smells, and then cedar oil for antimicrobial means. Hundreds of yards of linen were used to wrap the mummy as many as 30 times over, and layers of pine resin were applied between the wrappings. This kept the linen in place kind of like a glue, as well as acting as an insect deterrent. Amulets could be adorned between layers as well as spells or incantations to be written upon the linens, too. During the wrapping process, prayers were recited by a priest. And at the end, a large shroud was tied around the final product, which could then be placed in a coffin. This entire process took 70 days. 70. And as uh, embalming became more commonplace for the general public, embalmers offered a much wider range of embalmings to fit various budgets with various levels of pomp. Exactly. So like we talked about before, this embalming was extremely important for every single person um, in ancient Egyptian culture. Um, Obviously, I um, could assume that if you were of a lower class or didn't have um, much to your name in terms of material wealth, um, this procedure probably couldn't be afforded and was reserved for the more important people or people that could kind of pay for this kind of treatment. Um, a really common practice that would be used for more like 
just kind of run of the mill, like regular embalming would just be sort of like a rough evisceration of all of the organs inside the body. And then instead of taking everything out, um, the body would just be stuffed with the, the drying materials and, and things like this that Red was talking about. So a much shorter process, but mm-hmm. that made it a lot more affordable. And then one of the one of the um, cheapest options, the the basement budget option, as we <laughs> the back say, alley embalming, <laughs> <laughs> was this thing called evisceration per anno, which means uh, with through the anus, I'm assuming, um, mm. where they uh, evis- injected large amounts of cedar oil um, up the anus and then kind of squished everything around in the body cavity. <laughs> And that's that was considered uh, "quote unquote" embalming for the poor, the poorest of the poor. Um, would it help? Maybe, um, but I guess it's better than doing nothing. I'd still much prefer our modern embalming. I think to <laughs> to this method. <laughs> yeah. There are tons of instruments and tools used to perform embalming, and we could honestly make an entire episode about just these implements. And um, interesting enough, there have actually been modern studies done utilizing materials of old to see how effective they were at mummifying bodies and staving off bacteria. And honestly, a lot of these have had great success. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I mean, the the materials that they're using are still kind of used in a way today. And it, it just makes sense. And it's just really crazy to me how they could have had these ideas in uh, their heads Um, and kind of put them into practice like this. Another thing that we kind of briefly touched on that I just wanted to bring up again was that the region in which um, Egypt played a huge role as well in kind of the preservation of the bodies. Mummification is a natural process that happens when you have um, organic material um, decaying in a very dry and a very hot environment. Um, This is exactly ancient Egypt's um, kind of environment. Um, So this process can happen naturally just through like exposure to the sun, and it still happens to people today. Um, I think we talked about it on another episode, actually, but if let's say you like die outside in New Mexico, or maybe you die in your house that's very dry and very hot for whatever reason, you can become mummified. You can become a mummy. And it happens quite often. You often see it starting in the fingertips, and then it like slowly works its way up the body. Um, but yeah, it's it's very cool that that this is kind of just like a natural process that they made work for them. So after you have this mummy, where does it go? They had different types of coffins uh, made of wood, usually to house the deceased, and they would be painted or engraved with funeral texts, gods and goddesses, the name of the dead, and various personalizations. Uh, so not really too far off of what we do modernly, to be honest. Yeah. Once anthropoidal coffins came to fruition, the likeness of the person would be painted upon it. And anthropoidal, for those who don't know, is like a human shape. So like the the coffin we think of that like vampires rise out of, that kind of thing. Hmm. For the wealthy and the powerful, the coffin would be placed inside of a large stone sarcophagus. And these were basically the burial vaults of the ancients. It was meant to further protect the mummy, however, above ground. So now all of this pomp and circumstance has happened for the preparation of the deceased. We move on to what the funeral day looks like. And mind you, this is so much later than the initial death. 
Um, mourning was a huge part of death culture for the Egyptians, especially in a public display. People would cover their faces in mud and take to the streets to openly wail and beat their chest in grief. Funerals in Egypt were more so resemble our modern procession to the cemetery with graveside prayers. The delay between death and the funeral procession was so massive, and some modern-day families complain they had to wait a week to have services. Imagine waiting over two months for mummification to be completed, or even longer if the tomb was still being built. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a <laughs> that's a funny comparison, yeah. Because uh, I think now we're so used to um, wanting that finality immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, in ancient Egypt, they had to sit and prepare the death for a very, very long time. Um, a lot of time to, to sit with the death and be present for that. So during the procession to the burial site, the mummified body would be received from the location of embalming and processed via animals like oxen, either to the deceased home or directly to the place of interment. The family would jaunt along the coffin adorned sledge. Those in grieving would usually show so by not shaving, displaying mud or dirt on their heads and faces, or tearing their clothes. Walking along with them would be offering bearers carrying the graved goods, priests, and sometimes even professional dancers, whalers, musicians, and singers. Chief mourners role-playing as Isis and Nephthys would perform the Lamentations, which are funerary texts depicting Isis and Nephthys' call to Cyrus's soul to rejoin the living. So very, very theatrical. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a party. I like it. Honestly. Burials of the dead were preferred to be on the west side, as Jem said, so a boat was often used to ferry the procession across. There were many readings and prayers that priests accompanied the funerals with, but the most important ceremony was the opening of the mouth rite. It was utilized to reanimate the mummy for the soul to continue using it in the afterlife. Spells would be recited and various body parts would be touched with ritual implements by the priest to allow the body to see, hear, eat, drink, breathe, move, and anything else a body would need to do after death again. <laughs> And then after the entombment, a grand feast would be held because every good death deserves a good party. <laughs> yeah, that's very awesome. It's it's kind of sort of uh, reminiscent of like, um, I don't know if there's any correlation at all, but like what you would see in like a like a New Orleans type celebration. Yeah. For like processions. <laughs> Just kind of like. Um, I don't want to say like a celebration because of the like professional mourners and stuff like this, but just kind of like a procession and like a very like big, big affair. I, I like it. Yeah, absolutely. We see a lot of these things kind of carried throughout history and even into modern times, uh, obviously still with the, the same concept that the rich get more of the pomp and circumstance than uh, the poor do, but there is always so much more involved um, in in some of these funerals where you have the limos and you have this like giant uh, cacophony of different things that make up. Uh, we we actually do still see uh, professional whalers being uh, used in certain religions nowadays, and mm-hmm. and all of these things. So it's it's just just so interesting to see the different threads that have run through history and continue on in different aspects of different religions and cultures. So I'm very excited to do more episodes like this to be able to show like what has progressed with us as a human race. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this has been really interesting, like looking into this kind of stuff. We all know about, you know, ancient Egypt and like embalming and blah, 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 and the mummies. Um, but just being able to take a look back at the social history and sort of understanding where this all came from as like an ancient civilization was actually really cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, honestly, this was one of the episodes that I had uh, some of the most fun researching. Mm-hmm. Something I did want to mention as we close out this episode is that um, the ancient Egyptians weren't obsessed with death. I know it can seem that way uh, with how elaborate some of their burial practices can be and with how much mummy madness is portrayed in films. Like Many people could easily formulate that they were constantly occupied by the afterlife and readying themselves for, uh, for this transition, for this giant journey. But a lot of these practices point more to their occupation with living and living a good life and and carrying that on into the hereafter. And for heaven's sakes, uh, no pun intended here, their their paradise is literally just the living world with a few less worries. Yeah, that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me, too. Sounds like a good place (laughs) to be. (laughs) And that's all for this week on Mort Mike. We'd like to connect with you guys on our socials, so like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Mort Mike Podcast. It would mean a lot to hear your feedback, so please tell us what you think in a comment or drop us a rating on whatever podcast hosting site you use. You can suggest topics to us uh, via our email and burning questions. We'd love to hear uh, what you guys might want us to do next as our next civilization that we cover. So shoot us an email at mortmikepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, We also always want to thank our friend Marcin for the use of his song titled Deputies of Death, which he produced just for our show. You can check out his bandcamp at marcinmusic.bandcamp.com. Thanks, Marcin. And be sure to tune in the first Thursday of every month for more casual discussions on death. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Mort Mike. Bye. Bye. Bye.